0: Welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of A Congruent Life, inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. My name is Andy Gray, and I'm grateful you're sharing these stories with us wherever you might be. In this program, we are continuing to explore authenticity from many different perspectives. Today's guest, Alana Lewandowski, is a singer and songwriter who discovered that life as a professional recording artist left her unhappy and unfulfilled. Feeling what she called betrayed by music, Alana embarked on a pilgrimage to heal and rediscover herself and her musical roots, and wrote a book and an album called I Am a Sparrow about that journey. I'm talking today to Alana Lewandowski, who is a singer songwriter, a former international recording artist, and definitely a wise soul beyond her physical years. Alana, welcome to A Congruent Life.
2: Thank you, Andy.
1: So let's maybe start with a bit of your musical story and and talk about that part of your life first, and then we'll get on to some other juicy topics as we go. So can you maybe just give us an overview of your musical journey?
2: The overview is that I was born with a, a tendency towards music. As I got older, I started songwriting and composing and then moved into my teen years where I was really performing a lot, and from that into my 20s where I I was discovered and signed to record labels and publishing deals and so on and so forth and ended up being whisked off to tour the world playing music.
1: (laughs) Can you maybe talk about your childhood a bit and how that influenced your journey into the musical world?
2: My mom is a painter, very creative person. She wanted to foster the arts in her kids. There's a lot of reasons why some parents decide to homeschool their kids, and there's a lot of judgment around uh, around that and, and stereotypes, and I'm sure I fit some of them. But the motivation for me to be home-educated was the schools in the area didn't really offer, because we lived in the country, um, they didn't really offer a lot of art-friendly or creative for kids and she really wanted us to open our channels and our minds in that way and so she would have these older guys come over on Tuesday nights with mandolins and guitars and fiddles that's how I learned to play guitar was just by watching these old guys playing, actually very similarly to Mother Maybelle, even though they may not have wanted to be compared to a woman guitar player. But they, that's how they played. And so I kind of learned how to play from watching them and all of their solos were done on on the bass strings and uh, we sang all the old time songs and so that kind of where my love for the roots of music came from and then i just moved into being introduced to the songwriters of the you know the 60s era and and from that point just started developing my own sound
1: so you moved in as a as a young adult and and you had some success and you as you said, got discovered and you started living the life. You were extremely successful in that. You had it made as a, as a recording artist.
2: Yeah, and I mean, having it made as a recording artist that sort of has their foot in the root world, as well as into sort of the popular world, it's not as romantic as it sounds. It's just a lot of really hard work. I've toured consistently 17 countries and had some experiences that some people save up their money and maybe get to have those experiences when they've retired. And and some of them would never get some of the things that I experienced. Like I had a private tour of the Guggenheim in Bilbao, Spain, (laughs) because I was performing there, and that was a part of their hospitality. (laughs) So just seeing the sights and getting to see the world, I guess, from the eyes of a troubadour is a very interesting uh, experience. And I wouldn't trade it. But there were definitely other aspects that kind of threaded along with that, connected to identity and connected to pressure. And once you get into that world, other people have hope for you as much as maybe even more than you do because they've got a vested interest in, in you, like if they're on your team. So it just becomes a sort of a pressure cooker for a lot of people, and it certainly did for me.
1: Can you maybe talk a bit more about that uh, tell some stories about what that was like for you? As you said, you started becoming aware of these identity issues. And can you maybe expand on that a little bit?
2: Um, Sure. And I should say I did have it made, but there, there were times where I was on a tour bus in a really cushy tour. Sometimes I was driving myself, depending on the country that I was in. And at one point, I remember sleeping alongside a road because I didn't want to stay in the hotel room provided for me because I wanted to get a head start on the next day. And there were there was kind of no room at the inn. (laughs) And I remember sleeping alongside the road near like where lorries were parked. And I got so cold that I covered myself in my own merchandise. (laughs) (laughs) It was like these, uh, there were t-shirts that people were buying. So it's just an interesting thing because you have it made when it comes to, you've got booking agents and you've got, uh, you're in the magazines and you're on the BBC and you're being touted as the songwriter of your generation and things like that. So on the one hand, it's a feather in your cap and the day in, day out can be quite grueling. But on the other hand, it's also quite a lot of pressure and at, at a certain point when you start developing a team around you because you need one and they're all very well-meaning people for the most part. But what happens is that they have a vision for your life and when that happens, it, particularly in my case, when that happens, I, I kind of lost my own vision for my life and started trying to please the people that had a vision for me.
1: That must have been a pretty heady experience as a young adult to have those kinds of phrases printed in magazines about you. You Things like the songwriter for our generation. That's a really big sort of expectation to have to live up to.
2: Yeah, and you learn to respond even to questions like you're asking right now. My default answer, because I used to give interviews while I was cleaning my fridge while I was driving to the next gig, because, you know, there weren't any cell phone driving laws back then. (laughs) My default answer instantly is that I was told, when I was like 19, never to take the bad reviews or the good reviews personally. And I actually really kind of tried to live by that, but it still get in there. And so, because you're starting to be defined in a certain way and respected in a certain way, and I and when you're that young, and maybe if you're dealing with uh, your own issues from, say, from childhood, and there or they' you're not dealing with them, you kind of learn how to cope in different ways. And one of mine was. I used to be able to walk into a room at a some kind of function like an industry and kind of own it. and I had like a lot of barriers, walls kind of built up um, and tools that I had that I used because I sort of saw myself in this really immature light as like the Mona Lisa. And in one sense, it was very immature, but in the other sense it actually worked where I could walk into a room and people thought that I knew something that they didn't know. (laughs) That was kind of my survival tool, because in that industry, the pressure to be the sexiest girl in the room, the pressure to be sort of fulfill a fantasy of some kind, but never show your true self is all there all the time. It's a kind of a requirement. And so for me, I was always kind of a, a bit of a smarty pants. <laughs> and so I was able to survive in a room full of people and almost kind of surround myself just with this sort of sense of, uh, I know something you don't know. And then it, it, it attracted people. But I don't believe I was in a place in my life where I was attracting people in a good way it was a part of kind of a, the, the cavity or the, the empty place that I was trying to fill in order to matter and in order to be seen. And so those are the things that you you do and you look back on it after having gone through what I've gone through and see yourself as a little girl that's kind of scared and <laughs> trying to survive.
1: So it sounds like you gained that awareness pretty much by going through that somewhat painfully.
2: I did. It culminated when I was, uh, 30 years old. I had actually, it it was maybe a month before where I had been in Los Angeles and I was on a rooftop and I had performed very successfully, um, at this big, big, big popular conference. And I definitely at that point was feeling pretty empty and watching like i was i remember being on on this rooftop and watching the other women refusing all the finger food because of how many carbs or whatever was in in the food and just the uh, the physical starvation of the these women was just sort of almost a symbol to me of their spiritual emotional <laughs> starvation and i was like is is that me because I had uh, all these rules for myself connected to food. I even told people, just so I didn't have to deal with them asking any questions, um, that I had allergies that I didn't have. Just the the pressure, uh, body image pressure. I was on this rooftop and I was totally, completely not happy. At all. I felt like I didn't belong there and I felt like I was almost having an out-of-body experience watching this person go through the motions because that's what you're supposed to do in order to quote-unquote make it. Don't get me wrong, I... I loved performing and I still love uh, music but I just had this scent that it, this wasn't my path in order to express myself in that way and then about a month later I kind of lost in my personal life a lot of things. My partner left me and I had a miscarriage and I ended up being in a situation where I needed to move from where I was living. And my best friend just so happened to be available for me at that time. And we decided to move to a little beachside town north of Winnipeg, Manitoba, on Lake Winnipeg. And we fixed up a little cottage that initially for the first six weeks or seven weeks had no running water and no no plumbing and we had to go we had to walk to the beach showers and we fixed this cottage up and we stayed there for five or six months and it was during that time i worked for a landscaping company which was the first job i had had outside of music in a very long time and i just checked out completely I left my team, I left my label, and I needed a break, like I can hardly even describe. And I I remember standing on the beach one night and looking at the full moon and knowing that I was happy. And sort of being able to mark the difference between this scrambling, like always trying, always, every single day was like, you know, a 50 to 100 email day and it was always just this striving, striving, striving. And the motivation behind it was that I was trying to be seen. I was trying to matter. The motivation for it was coming from this very empty place. It wasn't coming from a whole place. And so when I finally let that go and discovered there looking at the moon that I was actually happy, I probably hadn't felt that in like eight or nine years, at least. It was an epiphany for me, and the epiphany came at the cost of great loss. But yeah, that's, that's where, in my particular situation, that's how it had to happen.
1: You later embarked on a musical pilgrimage of sorts, uh, where you, you basically hopped in a car and did a big road trip and spent quite a bit of time on the road in a a sense of self-discovery that you wrote about in a book called I Am a Sparrow and a musical album of the same name. Can you talk a bit about that transition? How how did you feel motivated to jump in a car and hit the road? What were you trying to accomplish by doing that?
2: Well, I remember in uh, 2010, uh, that was the summer that I was living in that cottage and fixing it up. I uh, had to fulfill some of my commitments that were previous commitments. And one of them was to perform at this festival in Nova Scotia. And I was there in, in July over a weekend. And um, at that time, I couldn't sleep very well, I, especially in that setting, because I was very tender and I was hurting a lot. I felt like I had been betrayed by music <laughs> in in some sense, because it uh, I love music. So much. I have this relationship to music, but I felt like I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, just because of the nature of the industry of music, and so there I was. I was having a hard time sleeping, and so I would stay up with folks or sitting around fires on the on the ocean and swapping songs and playing music. and And then I heard um, some of the local people that were just attending the festival. Um, I heard them playing one night on a dock, and I and I joined in with them. And I realized that I'd lost kind of my reason for why I liked music so much or why I loved it and I wanted to be around people who played music for the love of it and that's actually the definition of the word amateur (laughs) is for the love of it. I just wanted to be around players that played music because it brought them joy. It didn't necessarily bring them um, a paycheck or anything like that. And I really wanted, to, I didn't want to turn my back on music completely. And at the time I wasn't writing songs, I felt, uh, I, had, I felt betrayed. So I, I just felt like it just wasn't, it was empty there. And so I decided um, when I was standing on that dock that I was going to do a drive from Newfoundland all the way down to New Orleans where all I did with I didn't have this agenda like I had when I was touring where I had to be in a different city every night and I had to call um, and let people know how I did, what the sales were, and just the, you know, getting to another interview and a radio and a just without all of the pressure of that kind of agenda, just to be by myself and go and fall back in love with music. And so that was the journey. And while I was on the journey and afterwards as I was writing the book, I started to realize that another reason why I was motivated to write the book and to do the trip was because I was I needing to do kind of a pilgrimage that was more about allowing myself to stop to not have to have that identity that uh, I'm always on the road and never have anything kind of consistent the more tour dates I have the the more hardcore I am you know when you do 150 to 200 days in a year it's kind of like you get this certain kind of respect it's like being able to outdrink the boys <laughs> I wanted to allow myself, to give myself the space to let go of that identity and the reason why I called the book and the album I Am a Sparrow is because while I was on that trip I discovered songs from the different regions that uh, were written by women years and years ago. Some of them are 400 year old songs certainly written before there was a songwriting industry and before copyright was a thing. And the commonality between the songs is that they were written by women a long time ago who wished they could be like a bird to fly away from their circumstances. And for me, what I felt Um, more than anything was that I was a bird. And I sort of wanted to echo back across time to these women and say, I am a sparrow. I'm not wishing I was a sparrow. (laughs) But uh, that I was actually caged kind of by my own freedom. And I wanted to give myself permission to touch down And settle my wings for a while and and nest and do human things (laughs) or bird-like things that weren't always migrating and flying. And and, uh, that's what the trip was about. So it was five months and uh, I was the resident minstrel on a schooner off the coast of Maine. I helped a couple paint a farmhouse in New Hampshire. And I spent a lot of time in uh, North Carolina and Virginia and Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee and, of course, Louisiana, and then the maritime provinces and Newfoundland. So it was a journey and it was needed and it helped me transition into my current life.
1: <laughs> Your book is a remarkably insightful memoir about that pilgrimage and that journey. And it's, it's neat the way that you paralleled the album to go with that I wonder if we might listen to the title track, I Am a Sparrow.
2: Yeah, for sure. Let's let's have a listen.
3: Some women weep for the times of their youth when they got to shine. Some women weep for the times that are gone. But I weep for the days when I'm wrinkled Hoping that I won't be so alone I'm a sparrow And I've flown Flown around this big old world In planes and trains and boats I'm a sparrow This longing for her nest Hoping that I'll get to build a home When I first saw you Somehow I knew That we would make it through When I first saw you I didn't want to travel on I'll meet you there You'll meet me here With laughter and with tears Mine is a love that you can rest upon But I'm a sparrow And I've flown Flown around this big old world In planes and trains and boats I'm a sparrow This longing for her nest Hoping that I'll get to build a The I'll get to build a home. I finally get to build
1: a home. So why is this so important to you what, what what's the story behind this song and, and why you use this as the name of your book and your album?
2: I Am a Sparrow is a love song to my partner, Ian, first and foremost. And then beyond that, it's kind of a call across time to these women who wrote these songs that wished they could be a swallow or a sparrow or a dove to fly, fly away because they were so immobile. These women didn't have the freedom that I that I have. It's a it's an inverted call to freedom. I wanted the freedom to be able to stay in one place. That's why it's so important to me because I think place is a is a huge, important thing to learn. And I don't know if we learn it when we are touring all the time. I don't know if we can learn it. There's a, a stuckness that this stuck feeling that you get that you can't move. It's, it's harder to transition from one life stage to the next. when you constantly don't have to be accountable. And you constantly are moving and it's just, it's a lot harder to be able to do that. And I really, really needed to transition.
1: The mission of this Congruent Life Project is about sharing stories of authenticity. What does living authentically or congruently mean to you?
2: I think it goes back to what I said about how a part of why I needed to crumble and and fall in the way that I did was because my motivation was not coming from a, a place of wholeness, it was coming from a place of needing to matter, needing to be someone needing to be sort of productive to show the world that I'm better or that I'm a harder worker or (laughs) whatever it was. And so I think living authentically to me is actually living a creative life that is motivated and coming from a place of wholeness rather than that cavernous, empty place (laughs) that causes you to do these things for those reasons, to be scrambling, to, you know, have an identity and, and a legacy
1: So, Alana, what would you consider to be some of your notable failures and what have they taught you?
2: Oh, probably my my failures are kind of connected to my wins. I think anybody would be able to say that. But uh, some notable failures are kind of connected to what I just said about about, um, being motivated from a place of emptiness rather than wholeness. Because it crosses over not only in your business life, in your identity as a creative person, but it, it comes into your personal life, and that's definitely been um, an issue for me uh, in relationships, not just in in romantic relationships and friendships, where I was um, kind of coming at life from that same place. And so I think that would definitely be a failure that's turned into a win <laughs> for me. But another failure, I would say, and it's might might more be just a learning curve as you grow. Uh, Another thing that was kind of driving me is I had a quite a specific opinion about most men being on the road the way I was and touring with people much older than me. I had a mistrust already going into this line of work and then uh, it was very kind of my mistrust was sort of fed exponentially (laughs) Um, being on the road with other people who don't have to necessarily transition out of that, some of them sort of get to be that high school cool well into their 50s and 60s because of their position in the world as an artist. I think the failure part that, ha- that I've learned from is, is just a, a sort of having an overall low opinion, a, a not a very respectful opinion of men. And it's something that's another thing through all of this that I have learned. I've learned compassion in a way that I certainly didn't have out there, mainly because I was trying to survive. It's another failure that I would say is a win, is because I, I look back and I see people in a different light and I see their humanity and I look at them in a way that's more compassionate and it's more constructive, Whereas my, my former way of looking at things was immature and uh, not constructive. It didn't build anything. It broke down even further. And so um, that's been a huge, huge learning curve for me.
1: So what's next for you, Alana? What, what's going on in your world that you're excited about?
2: Well, I'm actually, um, interestingly enough, I'm writing a book and it's kind of... I think I might be writing a book after that that's connected to this book. And uh, there will be music, there will be an album. So far, the working title for this book is A Woman's Guide to Iron John, which is the book by Robert Bly about men. Back when I was speaking about uh, my failures, I feel qualified to write (laughs) about this because of uh, the compassionate transition that I've made. But there's also um, a fairy tale, a grim fairy tale, Alar Luro. And I would say that Aller Lero is the female initiation story that's the equivalent to Iron John. I've been reading it every day, this fairy tale, and trying to allow to sort of break down into... And uh, and then I've just been writing the, just the insights that I get from it. And I feel like... There's probably going to be either like a double book or two books that kind of go correlate to each other. But the first one is A Woman's Guide to Iron John. And that's something I'm excited about. And the other thing that I'm really excited about is that I uh, I had my ultrasound this morning, and so I got to see my baby. And so that's something I'm like, wow, look at what I've been up to for the last five months. <laughs> That's pretty cool. (laughs) It's a very creative space that I'm in.
1: Absolutely. Very creative. Congratulations on that. It's so exciting.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm very excited.
1: Is there a final thought that you'd like to share about authenticity?
2: If I could say anything to people, it would be that when the time is right, if I could help people through discovering that they're in a story, I think that would help them to discover that they're enough already and that they matter already and that discovering that holistic or that place of wholeness to find the motivation from there to be creative in the world I think it's where it's at and there is a time to be motivated from that place of brokenness but I think it's a misplaced longing maybe finding that place of wholeness and discovering that desire is just another part of our lives that is a good thing and we'll always have it and might not actually fulfill certain desires and because we'll desire something else anyway. It's just this paradox or tension that we need to live in. And if I could help people discover how to find that motivation in that place, I would feel like that might be something that I need to contribute to the world now more than uh, performing.
1: Well, thanks, Alana. How can our listeners engage with you?
2: They can come onto Facebook. I have a website So my name is Alana, A-L-A-N-A, Lewandowski. They can definitely connect with me uh, probably in lots of ways online.
1: (laughs) Well, We'll be sure to link to all those things on the show notes for this episode.
2: Yeah, thank you.
1: Well, Alana Lewandowski, thanks very much for spending this time with us and sharing your stories.
2: You're very welcome.
1: I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Alana Lewandowski. The show notes for this episode are online at acongruentlife.net slash 11, where I'll link to Alana's website, her music, her other work, including a video documentary about her pilgrimage, as well as the fairy tales that she mentioned. Thanks again for being here and listening to A Congruent Life. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick positive review on iTunes. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at congruentlife.net. See you next time.